Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Outer Sanctum is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Good plan. Good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Outer Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. Hello and welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. It's been a rough one. The world feels so small right now, shrunk by the magnitude of the issues people are facing here and overseas. Sport, as always, has provided some distraction, but the Australian sporting community is not immune to grief and cricket is wearing the brunt of broken hearts this week. While suburbs, businesses and families clean up after devastating floods, we acknowledge everyone who's going through that rough time. My name is Emma Race and I am lucky to be joined by my football-loving feminist folk. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Julia Kiera. Hello, I'm Lucy Race. My darlings, it is so nice to see you. It is actually International Women's Day today and I've noticed that there's a lot of kind of malaise, is that the right word, around Mm -hmm. International Women's Day. I think people are starting to feel pretty cynical about it and mostly it's women. I think the UN's uh, theme set is gender equity today for a sustainable tomorrow. But then, of course, there is the International Women's Day product placement corporate website that has kind of become the monster of International Women's Day and and their hashtag is break the bias and neither of them are wrong and they both are a talking point and a starting off point but to kick off this 8th of March episode how do you feel about International Women's Day as we sit here today Julia? I'm completely disillusioned by it and I think that it does feel like a corporate capitalist beast uh, almost the hallmark card of international days Um, and, you know, we've all been seen invitations or been invited to speak at breakfasts at 7am in the city that, you know, really don't show an understanding of a real life woman (laughs) and how that's not necessarily um, something that you want to go to. Words are cheap. Uh, Breakfasts are expensive but cheap. I don't actually have a point. It's just I'm over it. (laughs) (laughs) I have this sense of kind of moral licensing around it that if we on this one day do a really good job and showcase some women doing things that are exceptional, then we can just go back to business as usual for the rest of the year where women don't necessarily have, well, where women don't have the same equality, particularly if they're women from low socioeconomic groups or minority communities or women with disabilities, women facing domestic violence, sexualized violence, trans women. I guess I'm feeling a bit jaded and Mm. I've spent the morning cleaning up the dog bed because she keeps eating it and 
you know, pulling out my hair because my kids didn't clean up their room. So business as usual for me. (laughs) It's interesting because I feel the same kind of cynicism as you guys. I've probably caught it from you over the years a little bit because I do tend on the side of Pollyanna. But I think in my older age, I'm becoming the person who throws down more often. And I realize that rooms that I get invited into, I think if I do my job well enough in them, I won't be invited back. I want to have uncomfortable conversations. I feel like that for me is the purpose of International Women's Day. I'm grateful that it exists so that we can have this leaping off point to have this conversation. I think it's about finding how it's relevant to you in the way that you advocate. Lou? That idea of being uncomfortable is something that's really important. And perhaps that's why I have spent the day more just sort of thinking to myself. I constantly have to be aware of my own privilege and wonder how I can use that in the best way to lift other women around me. And you're right, like there are a lot of conversations that are are very difficult to have. We had an, an incredible chat last night going in the group chat about white feminism and its failings some of the challenges around, you know, trying to affect change and how to do it and the pitfalls that you can fall into. And I'm really grateful for those conversations because it's in in a place of discomfort that you can try to find ways forward. Maybe that can be our mantra today. Welcome the discomfort. I think that's true. And I do think that it's still really important that we're having these chats around footy and sport because I think we have seen the needle shift a bit in the seven years that we've been doing this. With that in mind, let's just keep going. Let's keep trying to bust out these conversations. And they are difficult and they are hard. And sometimes I don't even agree with what I'm hearing on this podcast, which makes which thrills me. Because Mm. I learned something and it's something that's not in my wheelhouse. Shout out to the ladies from last week who managed to blow my mind. Mm. Um, But that means we've got our work cut out for us because we're competitive beasts. And last week they really brought it. So this week we are heading into the last round of home and away matches, which feels so weird. It feels like it's upon us so quickly. The Suns fairy tale in making the finals is over. Is that correct, Julia? Yeah, that's right. So the Suns are definitely out. The top six could possibly be already set. Uh, If Collingwood beat Richmond on Saturday afternoon, then it's done. The top six is it. Collingwood remains in sixth position. We might still get a few changes in who might finish on top. You know, if Melbourne smash the Blues and Adelaide either lose to St Kilda or don't score particularly high and uh, Melbourne have a big win, then Melbourne will finish on top. So this the battle for the top two is still live. We also know that there is an advantage to finishing third or fourth because you'll get a home final. But we could see some changes. If Collingwood lose and the Bulldogs beat the Lions in Ballarat, so not an not an easy challenge, but if they if they beat the Lions and we know that they're capable of beating a top side, they've done it with Adelaide, they could sneak into that top six spot. And then of course the technically still in it Carlton (laughs) cling to that that is mathematically possible mathematically possible Carlton is that the story of my whole life (laughs) so if Collingwood lose by a lot uh Bulldogs lose and Carlton smash the demons at Casey Casey. seems likely (laughs) 
they could sneak in as well. It's still a live beast. We'll, we'll know by Saturday afternoon, though, but after that Collingwood game, how it's going to look. Well, you've mentioned the Ds on a couple of occasions there, talking about how the top two will end up looking. The Dockers were decimated by protocols on the weekend, and the Ds really took their shot. Lucy, with so many blue and red highlights to choose from. What are you going to go with? I'm going to go with records tumbling. At my count, there was at least six records fell in that game. And I'm very grateful to Gemma Bastiani for a few of them. One of them was that the demons, uh, you know, the big one, don't bury the lead. The big (laughs) one is that they became the first AFLW side to break the 100 point barrier. So that's exciting. On their way to do that, They had the highest scoring quarter in the AFLW when they kicked seven goals one in the third quarter. That also meant that they broke the highest score, which had been set the week before by Brisbane. There was a new record. This was a new record for the Demons. They hadn't gone over 70 points, um, which was also against Fremantle back in round seven of 2017. So this was their highest score. They also scored the most marks inside 50 in AFLW, so at 23, and they had the most inside 50s at 53. So I really felt for Fremantle to have to pivot at the last minute and find players, particularly Michaela Weston, who was a top-up player who was playing for the WAFLW and had trained with the Dockers but hadn't played with them. To have to scramble to find players sounds like something that you do on Tuesday afternoon, you know, Tuesday evening netball. But you can't take away from the way that the Demons played because we've seen them building this season. Their skills, their structure just holds up so beautifully across the whole field. And they really put that on show the other night with their run and carry. Tyler Hanks can handball a pass to her teammates that is just so beautifully weighted and they don't have to break stride. And then to see a player like Daisy kick five goals, to see Paxi kick two, to see Lily Mithen have, I think, 24 disposals, just that all-round team performance there doing what I think everyone would like their team to be doing going into you know this part of the season. They're really firing. I just want to mention one particular player who is Eliza West. I have loved watching her play this year. So she this is her first season with the with the Demons. She equaled Lily's Lily Mithen's disposals with 24 on the weekend. She's just been a great addition to the Melbourne midfield, I think. she It's only her second year of playing football. She's again come from basketball. And the fact that we had West playing for the Eastern side and East playing for the Western Australian team also tickled my fancy. (laughs) I was thinking about this when I was watching the game. I'm really feeling for Frio, just feeling like this should have been an absolute showdown this game. And they were, as I said, decimated by protocols. But that Daisy, do you remember at the start of the season, she said, whoever can keep the team on the park, Mm -hmm. that's who's going to perform. And so thinking it through the lens of what can you achieve in this COVID miracle season, Mm. (laughs) well, actually, that's exactly how Melbourne did achieve it. You know, it was part of it was part of the story. It wasn't all of the story, but it was part of the story. I think the other part of it is, you know, Libby Birch talked on the AFLW show the other day about how they have been there or thereabouts the last few years. And Mick Stenier said to them at some point, 
you actually then have to take the chances. Like you're actually there. So this is your time. And when that is in front of you, what are you going to do? And I think that's what we saw from the demons on the weekend. Julia, you were obviously watching that game. Was that your highlight or have you got something else? Oh, look, that was pretty fantastic to watch, but we couldn't uh, not mention the race to 50 games uh, has finally been won and really fittingly achieved by three champions. So uh, Ali Anderson and Emily Bates for Brisbane uh, and Eb Marinoff played their 50th game on the weekend. It's not a coincidence that they're all premiership players. They've had multiple years of playing deep into finals, but it does really speak to the fact these players are possibly having their best seasons ever. And because they're, they're hitting that mark, you know, they're, they're getting to play what male players notch up in their first couple of years. And the thing about those three is that, you know, if you'd said in year one, these players are going to get six years better, we would have been like, well, they're pretty good right now, aren't they? You know, Ed Marinoff <laughs> on the rising star in year one, the Brisbane girls uh, jumped onto the scene. So it does just speak to sticking in the system, having longer seasons and look how good you get. Ali Anderson as well, fantastic that she's notched up 50 games and is the first Indigenous player to do it, do it and did it on the first weekend possible. So that's super exciting. I forgot to mention before that Brisbane are a slight chance to still finish top two if they have a huge win uh, against the Bulldogs and either Adelaide or Melbourne lose. I, I still think Brisbane are the team to beat. Watching them, I think they're so well coached. I think that they perform week in, week out. There's less anomalies with them. Like I feel like they're just so set and they've got so many opportunities to kind of demonstrate that over the past couple of seasons, they've got so much experience. And I know Adelaide's the same, right? And mm. Melbourne actually does have a fair bit of experience at the pointy end as well. But I just think I look at that Brisbane team and just think that is a freight train. Mm. That is a really, really hard team to stop. So, I mean, I don't know how it's going to roll out. I'm so excited for this final series. But as a Victorian, and I'm so sorry to everyone who's not in Victoria hearing this, but I was absolutely screaming for the D's, just hoping that with percentage that we might somehow get an AFLW grand final. <laughs> yeah. I've only ever been to one when, and it, was, um, it wasn't the result I was looking for. You know, I would love to see if Melbourne make the grand final, then I think we've got all power to absolutely make placards March into uh, Sally Capp's office, who's the the Lord Mayor of Melbourne, and then to AFL House and ask for a grand final at the G and a grand final parade. That's what I want to see. <laughs> I'm like, let's come on, let's get all the Melbourne fans on board. Let's make this happen. I would love to see that. And I know that other states do it differently and they do it so well. I'm just so thirsty for some kind of grand final. My highlight uh, was a really different one this week. Actually, there was a lot of footy highlights, but I've got to say, I went to watch the Hawthorne VFLW team play against Collingwood at Victoria Park this week. I just love Hawthorne has an entire female coaching panel for their VFLW team. That's already a powerful thing to see. And I know that you're pulling your face here, Julia, because Darabin was the first team to do it. <laughs> but at the moment, two of our coaches are pregnant and they're five and eight weeks away from giving birth. And it's just, I just love seeing how normal that looks. We talk about so much. We talk about players who come back from having babies to play at the highest level, which is something that my brain and my pelvic floor cannot get its um, head around because I can barely tie my shoelaces up eight years on from my last child. But uh, when I watch two coaches who've got big baby bumps stuck inside these polo shirts, I just, I love it. I love that that's what footy looks like to me and to all the people watching the game at the moment. And 
I feel like on International Women's Day, if I can't bring that up, I don't know when I can talk about that as my highlight. So I just love seeing the changing face and the changing body shape of coaches and coaching panels and players. And that is a conversation that we will no doubt have. Let's roll up our sleeves and melee. Are you ready to do this, ladies? Let's do it. This week, a report came out saying that Daisy Pierce had been approached by Essendon to be the coach of the AFLW team and that there was also a potential job waiting for her as an assistant coach in the AFLM at Cardinia Park. My question, first and foremost, is does this mean that she's definitely retiring at the end of this year because she just kicked five on the weekend? <laughs> Julia? Well, I don't have the secrets, but it was an interesting article to to be put out there. And I guess it would suggest that people have a sense that she's retiring and are going after her. But look, I was almost alarmed when I saw that sentence in there that Essendon had offered her the head coaching position of their AFLW program. I was bamboozled by that because Daisy is is fantastic. She will be a fantastic coach whenever she does it. Everyone who has ever met her knows that she has a fantastic footy brain, great person, great interpersonal skills. People love to play for her, blah, blah, blah. I love you, Daisy. However, (laughs) if I was in the current coaching staff at Essendon, I would read that and go, "Um, pardon? You went and, uh, you know, offered this to someone who's still in the system who I I'm not sure whether they've applied. You know, have you just done a, a cold call, a cold call, just to see if they'll go for it? So that was a weird one for me, and I guess is very reminiscent of previous coaching appointments in AFL men's, where you've picked a superstar player, a Nathan Buckley, a Michael Voss, and you've thrown the head coaching job at them when they haven't actually done the apprenticeship yet. That was alarming to me. Um, yeah. So, what did you think about it, Emma? I will remind you that we all lost our sweet minds when Nick Del Santo was offered the St Kilda job, and he had no previous coaching experience. And so, I just want to apply that same lens to this conversation. I guess where it breaks my brain is: is there a process? Are there hurdles that you have to jump? Is there accreditation that you need? Do you need to have a cert one through to four to be a coach <laughs> in the AFLW? Or do you not? Mm. I just feel like there's wiggle room for some people and not for other people. Again, I reiterate that Daisy will be an extraordinary coach if that's what she wants to set her mind to. And we would be lucky to have her as a coach in any part of this uh, machine and, and this system. But I guess I'm confused by how the process works. And the one thing that I will say is that when I look at Daisy getting offered a coaching role, say, at Geelong in the in the men's game, I do think that there's a scarcity mindset that comes with when we're talking about the male game that, and I know Alicia Eva does work at GWS, but I just think that, that Daisy's been appointed the one woman who can do everything. I don't know, maybe I'm not making a good point, but I do think that there are other women who have value that are getting overlooked and that somehow we might get Daisy washed, that this might mm. be the, the fix all. And Daisy's brilliant. She's absolutely brilliant. I'm not taking away from that, but I guess when I come back to it, that there's so many coaching courses and so many hurdles and and things that I feel like are reiterated that everyone else needs to to jump and leap over that I worry about if there's no process, how do we make sure that 
other women are going to get the chance to do this too. Yeah, exactly. For me, there's a there's a nice parallel with what's happened, say, this year with commentary teams. So I've been so pleased this year that when you turn on Fox or you turn on uh, Channel 7 this year, there's not just one woman's voice. There's, there's lots of them. And, and sometimes we've had all uh, women panels either doing the play-by-play or doing special comments or doing the boundary. And there've been lots and lots of different voices and different names and some of which I'd never heard of before. And with that, you're going to see that the cream will rise to the top. You know, that some of those uh, women who've got an opportunity this year, we might not see them again. Okay. And that's a privilege that men get. You get to try something out and the really great people who are really good at this or who have lots of potential will keep going and keep going and and they'll be the face of footy. And some people who it might not be a great fit for them, they fall away. And that's, that's okay. Like not every, not every woman put forward will be the best thing ever. We're not seeing that replicated in coaching. It's Daisy is the anointed one. Daisy has proven that um, she can go toe to toe with BT and Wanky carry she'll be able to put her point across and she'll actually make them look stupid a lot of the time and that is so much pressure put on her and I feel like we're almost making a Peter Sell mistake again where the same was done to Pete when she got that role at St Kilda and then it didn't work out and she was the only one so I am really you know scared about that I think let's let's throw 20 women into those programs and then some won't survive it and that's okay that's that's what happens in men's football so they they offer the development coach roles and they offer the assistant roles to heaps and heaps of men and the ones that aren't great fall away that is okay I think in a sporting environment where you're trying to get the best out of it the one thing that I want to throw in the mix just to completely counter my own argument because I'm good go ahead because I have been <laughs> musing on this is that I think coaching really could benefit from people who haven't had all the same coaching pathways. Like I think it's really important to have variety in the coaching panel and Daisy would certainly offer that. And I'm, you know, potentially you don't need to have done your cert whatever to be that person. So I think that, you know, having different voices, different skill sets in the coaching game and in your coaching team actually does make your team better. And I think some of the most exceptional coaching that we have seen has been when it's been people who are former teachers, as opposed to people who were coming from a from a 300 game premiership playing Norm Smith medalist background. Julia? I think we're all agreeing that Daisy's is amazing. <laughs> And is going to do, you know, if it does eventuate, you know, which hasn't even finished the season yet. Like we're already like planning out the next five years of her career. But it's just startling when some one woman needs to carry the torch for everyone. Um, when we know that there are a bunch of them already in coaching programs who are doing another leadership course, another upskilling course, and they're already in the system and their names aren't getting thrown around in this way. I think that that's what um, is concerning. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
This is Kurt Fernley, and I love listening to The Outer Sanctum. The sudden death of Shane Warne has seen an outpouring of grief, along with the outpouring of grief for Rod Marsh this week, and we send our love to the folks who will miss them both the most. But it has definitely raised some challenges because, you know, for me, I couldn't quite believe that I could see the renaming of the Southern Stand be decided to be named in Shane Warne's honour in what felt like a couple of hours turnaround. I was really shocked by that. Again, I think I'm going back to this, I thought there was a process, and maybe the process there is a process, but and it can just be fast-tracked when, mm. when the time calls for it. But I couldn't help but think about Betty Wilson and the fact that well, Ange Pippos has really been leading that charge, you know, asking for a statue of Betty Wilson outside the MCG for almost four years now, and I don't think there's been a result in that yet. And so it made me think about how how quickly we can respond when we want to respond and who gets valued ahead of other people. Now, I absolutely think that Shane Warne was so exciting for the game. I love watching replays of him bowling. I absolutely do. But there would be a lot of people in Australia who don't care for cricket or don't care for sport who must just be watching this thinking that we are all bananas. (laughs) Mm. How did it land with you guys? What we saw was an outpouring of grief that is actually very real. And it reminded me of other times when people that are very well known die. And when it's particularly, I think it's when people that you feel a connection to, that is key with Shane Warne, that people remember watching him and how that made them feel. There was always that sense of anticipation with every single ball that he bowled. You didn't know what was going to happen. There was mystery and excitement. It also taps into ideas of, you know, of your childhood, of friendship, of community, of playing sport. And there was something about him that was incredibly authentic and very flawed. I think that that's what has really been, has stayed with me this week is that it's quite rare to see somebody just as authentic as Shane Warne. He really wore his feelings on his sleeve. He made a lot of mistakes. He did own those mistakes and didn't shy away from that. And I think that people feel a connection to him because of that. And so I don't want to take away from, and I don't think we should take away from the real feelings that people have of sadness and grief. And also particularly keeping in mind how young he is, how young he was, and the loss to the people who truly loved him, particularly his children. You know, where it's difficult is you alluded at the top of the show, M, to so many other things that are going on in the world. And where it's difficult, I think, is when we see uneven coverage in the media of people's lives and people's losses. And to know that there were over 200 people who lost their lives to COVID in Victoria just a week ago is quite confronting. Um, and to know that we we don't know their names and we don't talk about, we barely, it was very hard to find those figures to be looking at what's happening in Queensland and New South Wales and then further overseas. I think I come back to, you know, raging against the machine, not against the individual, that it's the machine of media and it's about where we prioritise our attention and who gets that attention. And you can have two things be true at the same time, that it's that Shane Warne was an incredible athlete. He was somebody who was incredibly loved and well-known by many people and many people are mourning his loss. And there should be ways that 
we reflect on his life and honour his life. And if that's in statues or naming stands, then that's appropriate. We also need to think about the other people and the other lives and the other achievements that we want to celebrate. Julia, you a cricket fan? I think probably the time when Shane Warne was playing was when I paid the most attention to cricket. And I agree that it does bring up great memories of of childhood and a time when it just felt natural that Australia had the best cricket team ever and we were unbeatable and it was just you know of course any any gamer were in any trouble Shane Warne and Glenn McGrath would come out and just turn it so I, I definitely appreciate you know sense of sadness about losing someone that you feel so connected to in a sporting context and someone that you cheered on for a long time and, and gave you lots of great kind of sporting memories I guess what is hard to reconcile is that everyone's got an anecdote, a shame-worn anecdote about, you know, his larrikin behaviour, the drinking, the smoking, the womanising, and that it was all seen as being kind of charming and part of a, a greater, you know, Australian larrikin identity that we all found kind of amusing. Um, and that there is something about someone who owns their flaws and openly admits it, you know, didn't hide that that was their kind of behaviour that we like. But I'd say that we are accepting of that um, when it's a pleasant looking white man who wins cricket games and that perhaps we aren't as forgiving or find it as charming when it's coming out of any other person. And to hear those stories and and see that that's part of the mythology of Shane Warne that we all love, that that's a, that's a great yarn, that's a great, you know, story of a man. Um, and therefore we're fine naming statues after someone who behaved in such a way when if anyone else did that with any a different coloured skin, a woman, someone from a minority, uh, someone who wasn't cis, we would not be naming anything after them. And if we were, we'd be definitely going through a long, lengthy process. I think he changed as the years changed and I think that he did educate himself on things and he acknowledged his shortcomings and and to be honest every testimonial about him is that he was there was not one malicious bone in that person's body that he, that everything that he did when he when he hurt someone it was usually hurting himself more than other people and I think also that he probably lived under a shadow that you know a lot of women share and we we talked about body shaming last week on the podcast and, and it's been in the conversation this week in sport that I can see that 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 was something that he challenged that challenged him and that that he felt challenged by and to be honest that's somewhere that I really intersect with him where I think gosh I don't know what it would feel like to be in the public eye and have that much concern about my outward appearance and and to feel challenged by that being a great sports person and and not feeling like I fit the mold I think that really challenged him and I think that that is a really important conversation for men to be having as well and just on that Emma you know I really would like to reference the discussion that the team had last week in relation to body shaming Today, Sarah Perkins has written a piece for the Courier-Mail and is speaking out because she really wanted to get her message out about how she found the last week or so very, very tough, but she wants to use her platform to try and affect change because she's aware of the detrimental impact that 
conversations around body shape and appearance have on women and girls, but also on men and boys. And I really applaud her for that. She said that she's drawn great strength from the support that she's had from people who've reached out and been supportive on social media. What she wants to do is to, and this is a quote from her, let's start by breaking the bias about the ingrained belief that the appearance of a woman somehow determines her worth. (laughs) That's a very, very valuable conversation for us to be having because sport should be a place that is inclusive and is welcoming for everybody. And conversations about bodies have a way of putting up barriers. There was a study that came out of a women in sport study in the UK this week that revealed that there's up to or over a million girls who lose interest in sport as they become teenagers. And one of the main reasons they cited for this was a fear of being judged. But we're also having conversations about excluding trans and non-binary folk from sport. And that is a conversation about bodies and about biology and about gender identity and that is being weaponized, I would say, in terms of a broader culture war, but is having is is having a detrimental effect as well. And so these conversations about bodies have a way of creeping into all manner of places that can do great harm that we don't necessarily sort of acknowledge, you know, on the surface level. There's no easy way to have these conversations because at every turn I'm acutely aware of my able-bodied, cis, white, hetero life, right? And so at every single turn and at every single moment, I want to make sure that I'm being inclusive of all women. And when we're having a conversation about bodies, we cannot have that conversation without referencing the weaponizing of trans and non-binary people's bodies in sport and in politics and in the world. You know, if Kate Sear was here, she'd talk about how even the walking can be political thanks to Judith Butler. And it's true. It's true. And at the apex of that this week has been Sarah Perkins carrying the load for so many people's conversation about this, which is completely inappropriate and not okay. And we need to jump in on that fight. Because if we don't, when it's about someone like Sarah Perkins, who is an extraordinary athlete, who makes this competition better, who has demonstrated the strength and skill and the importance of her to this competition, then we're never going to get to have the conversation about trans people's, you know, their acceptance in sport and how we support them. The minutia is really important, whether that's that I feel uncomfortable putting a footy jumper on to go and sit in the outer, which is my absolute truth, because they never fit me and they look ridiculous. But I'm asking Sarah Perkins to put that jumper on and run around and be on TV. And if we can't have that conversation, how we can jump in and support athletes having all eyes on them in that moment of vulnerability, then we're never going to cut through. Julia, at community level, you've coached. What's the expectation on people's fitness and what they bring when they're playing for a community club? So I think the expectation at, so I've coached at community level and then at VFLW level, which I'd say is kind of a a midway, you know, between professional and and community. I would say in a, in a, in a woman's space, a women's football space, it's not about how you look, it's what you can do. So if you can perform your role on the field as a coach, that's what you'd be looking for. However, the connection is one that we've been taught the whole time. So if as a coach, you're giving the feedback, we need you to get to more contests, we need you to give more efforts, 
and the person feels that that is connected to their appearance, not necessarily their fitness level, or perhaps in the way the coach actually delivers that message, then that's very hard to pick apart in in those feedback conversations or in those selection conversations. I, I never mastered it. I still haven't mastered it. It's really difficult. And I think especially for, for women players who, who have grown up their whole lives with their bodies being scrutinized and sexualized and objectified, that's really freaking difficult. And I, and I don't know how to overcome that, to be honest. If you perform your role in the field, it absolutely does not matter what you look like. It, this is a role, This, you know, footy is is a game of doing, not a game of being looked at. And unfortunately, what you, you mentioned before, like players play because they like playing the sport. They don't do it because they want to be observed. They don't want to be objectified. That's not the motivation. So you're layering this really hard thing over the top over the top of their experience which is you are going to be scrutinized and watched this whole time and that's not why you got into the sport and it's probably detracting from your love of it the other side of that which is a word that sounds a little like scrutiny <laughs> is visibility mm. and visibility i'd argue is incredibly important that it's so important for everybody to see themselves having a place in sport. And I come back to the video that Rana talked about last week with the nuns playing soccer. And the thing that struck me about that video was that they were a group of older women. And it made me realize how often or how rare it is to see older women playing sport and actually having fun just playing. I thought that was beautiful. Mm. I took a lot from that and I'd like to see more of that. You know, I always come back to the one book that you've never read, Lucy, which is Andre Agassi's Open, which <laughs> I really love and highly recommend to anyone. He talks about how he was about to, I think he's about to win the US Open and the thing that he was most concerned about was that the thing that he'd fashioned to cover his bald head, which was hair kind of attached to a headband, he was worried it was going to move. And he's worried about that at match point. Look, it's amazing to hear stories about Barbara Streisand's ex-boyfriend. But um, what I, thinking back to Shane Warne, is about the sin, one of the seven sins, vanity. That men are allowed to be vain <laughs> and like the way they look and want to have like a ripped body and take hundreds of selfies of themselves in the mirror. And that, that, that's kind of seen like having a healthy self-esteem or as if women are vain that women want to look beautiful, that women wear makeup when they're playing or that they're concerned about that, that that is seen as a character flaw. And that to me as well is a, is a big issue that be vain. Like, I don't know, it's nice to feel sexy. <laughs> I disagree with you that, that that it's acceptable for men to be vain. I don't think it is. Like, I think men get a really hard time if they're too vain. I think men need to display that they can take the piss out of themselves. But if they're also vain and do that, and have a sense of humour, then we, we're fine with it. I think that if women, uh, men are too serious about it and can't take a joke, then we think that they're, I don't know, princes. Changing the direction of the chat, on the coverage on the weekend of the AFLW, Kelly Underwood was heard to say, and I didn't hear it myself, I might have heard it through a whisper from Julia Kiera, she said that there's an expected start time of August for the next season of AFLW. I have tried to get a comment from the AFL today on that and the what came back was that there is lots of 
things being discussed and lots of different dates and times are being talked about. But this August whisper does seem to be gaining a bit of traction, which is an extraordinary, it would be an extraordinary result because it means that we'd finish in March, we'd be back up again in August with four new teams. And in fact, a lot of the people who would be playing in that competition would still be at school. Year 12 school leavers would still be about to head into exam time. August feels pretty soon and it has its challenges but I don't hate it. Well I was obviously listened to that and and Kelly put it forward as as a rumor going around and uh, Karen Harrington who was on the broadcast sounded quite taken aback by it like it had had not um, come to her attention yet. I don't overall hate it I think it would be fantastic to see more footy during the winter um, played for a few months and then kind of wrapped up by October and we'd get our summers back and our Christmas holidays back and all that kind of stuff I think that that would be fantastic. There is something though where I feel like COVID has almost been like the invisibility cloak of decision making where the AFL can kind of make these decisions by stealth and say well we're in a very challenging time it's the pandemic we've got to work around this we've got all these other challenges where if we actually went back to the drawing board and said what is our blue skying what is our ideal scenario that these decisions perhaps wouldn't be arrived at and there is something about you know do these players catch a break like this is this is so much for them to carry they are limping to the line in this season and to think that some of them are going to have to fly out into their state leagues and then come back again in August. You've got those four new teams who are who need to like put up their AFLW programs and now might get you know three or four less months to do that. That's that's super challenging. Uh, we just said Essendon hasn't appointed a coach yet, and neither have Port. So that's pretty hard to deal with. And even you know, I was thinking about this the other day that. We don't yet know when the the grand final for this season is going to be. and It's going to be on the weekend of the 2nd or 3rd of April. And in the last few days, I've received like two invitations to 40th. My kids got some birthday party, blah, 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 on that weekend. And in my mind, I'm like, AFL grand final weekend is set. You do not put a 40th on that day. It is not socially acceptable. How are we in this position where I'm going to have to turn around the week of and say, I'm sorry, but the most important day of my year is happening and I only got five days notice. I'm I'm not coming to your party. It's so true though. I was talking to my partner about the fact that next time there is an AFLW season, which may be in August, may not be in August, uh, that while he runs for Carlton, he's a runner for Carlton, I am then one ticket holder for the Hawthorne women's team. I will not miss a game. I will travel with the team. I will be there. I want to be there cutting the oranges. I want to do whatever they need me to do. So I was like, I think, you know, it's a bit of time that you need to accept that I'm going to be, I'm not going to be here at all time picking up all the family slack when Hawthorne's in this competition. I was basically saying it is my turn. Right? <laughs> and then he goes, you're on notice. He said, um, yeah, but we'll just look at the fixture and work out. And I was like, the fixture comes out two days before the games. And mm. he was like, no, it doesn't always do that. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Mm. <laughs> I'd forgotten. I had legitimately forgotten that we usually know what the fixture looks like. Yeah. <laughs> that's my post-COVID. We've created a new normal in AFLW. Like I think they've almost lowered the expectations for players about how players can plan. We've had two, three seasons of this. 
I would like to return to a bit more of a normal situation where the fixture comes out, you know, a few months in advance. Everyone can plan. If you want to go to the Cairns game, you can book your tickets so that we're lifting the expectations. We're lifting the standard of professionalism. We, we lift all those things that come along with actually being able to to plan this thing properly. Lucy, how do you feel about an August time? You are traditionally a vampire, don't go well in the sun, a force to stand in, out at Casey in the blazing summer sun watching your Ds play. How are you feeling about an August start time? Surely you and your migraine are voting vote one August. Oh, I love it. I love the idea. I love the idea of starting at that point of the year for weather and for a whole lot of reasons. I think the myth of clear air is just that, a myth. And I think it's frustrating and I've found this, you know, a few seasons in a row that when we get to the really pointy end of AFLW and it's super exciting that all of a sudden it gets moved onto the secondary Foxtel channel and the papers are so full of AFL men's practice match and training information that it's hard to get to. This year has been better, I will say. But I think it makes it makes sense as, as a time to, to play the sport because it is a winter sport. I would say, however, that to back up without giving the competition and all of the stakeholders in the competition enough planning time is difficult. There'll be people that will have taken leave to play and then are potentially working full-time and and have commitments with work because they're not full-time athletes at that time of year. So just need some notice. Can I just offer into the public domain my favourite of the, I, I think most people are getting on board with the fact that you can't say footies back, that mm. that's complete, like, I mean, well, it's just factually incorrect. But I saw an absolute clangor when the Making the Calls owned Bryony Dawson was doing a product placement read on the women's footy show on Channel 9 and NAB, who sponsors women's footy, had a hashtag footies back. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. I was like, mate, this is this is so hard. This is a quagmire. Like it's actually mm. like trying to change a religion. Mm. People just love think- like have you ever known a, a like a slogan to stick so hard? Mm. A dog is for life, not just for Christmas. Do you reckon that's bigger? <laughs> that's a pretty big slogan. I think we're actually entering a time, and particularly this year, where the hashtag should be footy's never gone. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's actually true. Footy, 24-7. Footy, if only we could miss it. Mm. <laughs> All right, it's time for final business. One thing that happened last week, Julia, is that Lucy and I were on an aeroplane and we started talking about words that we can't say. (laughs) In fact, I put this out to the group that I struggle, and it's a big one for a football fan, I can't say the word (laughs) Guernsey. That when I see the word Guernsey, and sometimes I do have to read it because if I'm doing a jumper presentation or something like that, I have to say Guernsey. My brain tells me the word is Guernsey. (laughs) (laughs) What is the etymology of that word? Are we the only ones that use it? Because don't they call it a jersey in other countries? Is that where I'm getting my wires crossed? I can't say it either. I avoid it. I just call it a top. (laughs) I call it a jumper, but sometimes yeah. the clubs say you have to say 
Guernsey presentation. It is such, we need someone to actually dig in and tell us what the etymology of that word is. Mm. But then we came up with all these other words that none of us can say. I think, Lucy, you're on the record that you can't say the T word. Do you want to have a go? Yep. Tribunal. (laughs) Tribunal. Okay, you got it. I used to really struggle with Nick Maxwell. What did Mick you Maxwell. think it was going to be? Mick Maxwell. Mick Maxwell. <laughs> and Sean Boing, Sean Burgoyne. Sean oh Boingoyne. Sean Burgoyne. It, sound, it looks like it should be easy, but actually quite hard to say. And then Lucy said that she doesn't back herself. Are you going to say his name? Jared Waterley. <laughs> Gerald. <laughs> Gerald Waterley. Gerald Waterley would not enjoy being called Gerald no, Waterley. Gerald Waterley is a presenter on Gardening from. Australia, surely. <laughs> oh, you would think so. Julia, do you have one for us that you really struggle with? Well, there's one. I actually don't even know how to say this player's name properly. <laughs> Jess Sejanary? Sedunary? Sejanary. But I say it's Jess like Sedentary. <laughs> Can you say library? Library. I'll oh, say okay. Carlton I- again, but there are a couple that kind of I found out from a current AF4W player that they thought um, Georgia Stathis's name was Georgia Ostathis. But yes. the thing that actually, this is not quite, I can't pronounce it, but it I get triggery when I hear this name is Shera for Carlton because that's how people mispronounce my name. Shera. Shera. I did a little bit of Googling about. Jersey, <laughs> Jersey and Guernsey. And the funny thing is that they both mean jumper. Mm. They're both types of cows and they're both islands. <laughs> this is why we're effed. This is why you confuse them. So, is, it's so very confusing. Jersey's Jersey. <laughs> Jersey and Guernsey and the Isle of Man are part of the British Isles. So you can go to Jersey or you can go to Guernsey. So you're going to have to work out how to say it if you want to go to either of I'd them. rather go to the Isle of Lesbos than the Isle of Man. Thank you. <laughs> I definitely don't want to go to the Isle of Man. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, this is ridiculous. I think we should veto the word. I think we should just get rid of it. Jumper. Mm. Yeah. Footy jumper. jumper. All right. Have we got any other final business? You guys are ridiculous. Yeah, so this week we've seen um, something really exciting coming out of Football Australia where they've launched a new team of the Paramatildas. Uh, So this is the first national team for women and girls with cerebral palsy, acquired brain injury and symptoms of stroke. Uh, And this team is going to compete for the first time this year into the inaugural International Federation of Cerebral Palsy Football uh, Women's World Cup, which is in Spain in May. So that's really exciting. That's really great. And just a reminder that a friend of the pod, Kurt Fernley's podcast is back, Little Ripper. So if you get on board, please give them a follow and please give them a listen. Uh, Okay. I went and saw that movie about Venus and Serena Williams, which is named after their dad, which is called King Richard the other day. And I'm thinking about doing one of those Twitter live spaces where we can all have a conversation about it. If anyone's interested, let me know. I really enjoyed it. I feel like we need to have some kind of film 
criticism sports film podcast that comes off the back of this. I think Rana probably would be bang up for that. But I really want to talk about that movie if anyone wants to hit me up on Twitter. (laughs) I did enjoy the Beyonce soundtrack. I think that's it for now. We're going to come back with the results from round 10. We'll know how the ladder has landed. We'll know who's going to be in the finals. I just wish you all the very best of luck. And may I just salute anyone who is potentially sitting on a retirement here and is about to go into their final game because I think that stuff's really hard when you're sitting on it you probably don't know exactly where you're going to land next season I don't know how you make that decision and I just want to send love and thanks to anyone who's you know committed themselves to AFLW over the journey and put their body on the the line and we've already seen one retirement out of the Eagles with Courtney Gard who um, has announced their retirement last weekend so all the best to Courtney all right there is only one thing left for us to say my dear friends and that is Go, Go footy. footy. footy.